Hello and welcome to this podcast from Faber for November 2010. My name is George Miller, and later in this programme, I'll be talking to The Guardian's Asia Environment correspondent, Jonathan Watts, about whether China can pull back from the brink of environmental disaster, whose causes and effects he describes in his new book, When a Billion Chinese Jump. The whole situation was best summed up by a, a wetland conservation activist in, in, in the south of China, in, in Shangri-La. Uh, he'd been struggling for years and years to save the wetlands near his home. Um, it was a losing battle. And I say, you know, what? Why? You know, what's wrong? This is this is a beautiful thing. Why isn't it being protected? And he just had one, you know, one short phrase that seemed to sum up everything. He said, "The, the Chinese government, it has the power to expand. The Chinese government does not have the power to constrain." My first guest today is historian and TV producer David Olushoga, who, with co-author Caspar Eriksson, has recently published *The Kaiser's Holocaust* a chilling account of Germany's bid in the 19th century to become an African colonial power, a venture which was to take a genocidal turn and, the authors argue, become one of the roots of Nazism. Consider this 19th century opinion. Irreclaimable savages are destined to disappear from before the face of civilization as surely and perceptibly as the snow retreats before the advancing line of sunbeams. That opinion sums up the view of the majority of German colonists, yet it comes not from one of them, but from an English theologian, Frederick Farrar. And, as the authors show, the belief that might was right was far from a uniquely German attribute. British, French, Belgian, Dutch colonists all can be found espousing it. So this book, in laying bare this dark area of colonial history in Southwest Africa, is much more than an indictment of German atrocities. It reveals the mindset which informed the whole colonial project in the 19th century, and in Germany's case, as we'll hear, fueled the nationalistic fervour that culminated in National Socialism. But to begin at the beginning, how had David first encountered the story of what befell the Herero and Nama peoples over a century ago? I studied colonialism uh, and British colonial history at university, and I kept coming across in footnotes and throwaway references to what had happened in Namibia. And in the early noughties, the last decade, I became convinced as the anniversary of this event came up that this was the most important story in African history and, in, in my view, in, in, in wider world history. And so I got a grant from the Department for International Development, God bless them, and went to Namibia to start um, the production of an independent television documentary. It was then that I met Kasper Eriksson, the co-author of this book, and we made a documentary for the BBC together. And I was convinced working with Casper and being put onto more more sources, more archival material that Casper had done in his work, which had begun almost a decade earlier, that this was a story that I couldn't just make a documentary about. I had to do more. And so Casper and I decided we were going to write a book together. How difficult what was it to uncover the story? Because obviously elements of it have been completely suppressed and, and history really rewritten over, the, over mm-hmm. the top of it. So how hard was it to get at the, the truth of what happened? I think the most surprising thing about German colonialism in German Southwest Africa is how easy it is to access the German documents, the documents intercepted by the South African invaders in 1915. And more than that, it's surprising how much was recorded in the first place. One historian, a Dutch historian, Jan Bart Gewald, was pointed out that the level of detail of recording in what was a genocide must indicate that the, those involved, soldiers and civilian administrators, had just lost touch with, what, with the immorality of what they were doing. 
incredible details are recorded. Uh, the percentages of people worked to death on the railway companies are, are worked out to two decimal places. I think the most shocking document is um, the, the Totenregister, the death registers in the concentration camps, which were pre-printed in Germany. And in the column cause of death, it had the words death through exhaustion. It's shockingly easy to find this material. It is all there in the Namibian National Archives. And with the help of Werner Hildebrecht, the great archivist there, uh, and with Kasper's work he'd done previously, it was all available to us. What has concealed this story is not the lack of documentary proof. It's the fact that an alternative uh, history, an alternative narrative of colonial history in Namibia had been orchestrated by those who had taken part and carried out the genocide, and that that had, that had overwhelmed the truth. And then after the, the First World War, the very thorough report which was done into the genocide was, was basically suppressed, wasn't it? Copies mm -hmm. of, the, of the report were withdrawn and burned. The story of the, of the Blue Book, the, the report, which for very calculating and self-interested reasons the South Africans and the British carried out into what had happened in Namibia between 1904 and 1909, was, it was designed and it was used to strip Germany of her colonies. But the moment that had been done and the moment South Africa, German Southwest Africa had become the South African colony of Southwest Africa, it was in no one's interest, well, no one with any power. It was in, not in their interest to maintain the story of extermination and genocide because it was a barrier to white racial unity. And in a burgeoning uh, racial system, a system that was going to move towards apartheid, what mattered was the divisions between white and black, not the division between German and South African or Boer and British. And so it was expunged. It was, it was written out of history with the complicity of the British Empire, as well as, as well as South African authorities. And this is not a story that the British can feel entirely judgmental about or, or, or secure in, because Britain doesn't come out of the story very well at all. Now, Germany came late to the, the scramble for Africa, didn't it? It only came into being as a nation in the 1870s. So by the late 19th century, the, um, the hunt was on, really, for, for German territory that it, mm. could, it could lay claim to in Africa. So what was its project um, back at the beginning of its colonial enterprise? I mean, the question of how did the German Empire in Africa come about, uh, I think one of the, the, one of the great questions is how did it come about against the better judgment of Otto von Bismarck, who was never convinced, and I think to the end of his life remained unconvinced by the, uh, the practicality of the German Empire. There was just an enormous amount of awareness in Germany of what other European nations had managed to grasp for themselves in Africa. Germany had become, they'd become great traders, they had trading stations in China off the west coast of Africa. And they were in some ways taking part in the, in the, in the colonial adventure, the trade adventure. But once it became aware, after unification, once Germans became aware of just how powerful and globally powerful the British in particular were, and the French to a lesser extent, it became imperative for Germans, Germany's project to become a great nation, that she had her share of what became a place in the sun. And I think it was a, a bottom-up movement. It was a popular movement that in the end influenced the politicians against their better judgment. Throughout the book, it's clear that popular opinion was very strong. There was a, a high degree of public awareness of the colonies and their importance to, to what it meant to be German. It was just so exciting. It was. Uh, I think we, we we forget in the 21st century how exciting the colonial project of the late 19th century must have seen. Obscure lands you'd never heard of with exciting names. 
exciting and exotic people brought to your city, the kings you've never heard about, battles being fought. It was, and it did become, the stuff of boys' own adventures. And it was an immensely exciting project. But for a country like Germany, in search of what many felt was her right, rightful place in the world as one of the great powers, the empire was not just exciting, it was the, the manifestation of the greatness that Germany sought and the many Germans felt was, was their, their birthright. Now, we, we know that the Germans, to some extent, sought to emulate the British. They saw the British as kind of the, the models for, for running um, uh, an empire. But do you think the Germans approached the business of running colonies in a particularly unique way? The Germans were very well aware of a British concept of running empires, which was divide and rule. And I think they applied that no more ruthlessly and no less ruthlessly than the British. I think one of the big differences is the Germans ran an empire at an enormous financial loss. I think the reason why German Southwest Africa became German and rather than British is because there was nothing there. This is before diamonds had been discovered and copper had been discovered. And the British just would, didn't, wouldn't have wasted the candle on a colony like Southwest Africa. The question is, is the German empire run in a way that's more brutal than other empires? I, I don't think it is. I think the brutality is simply more systematic a more 20th century. I think in terms of, I mean, if you look at what happened to the Herero, 80% of them were exterminated, but they were very small people. So it's a very high proportion, but a very small number compared to what happened in the Belgian Congo and the King Leopold. So there's many ways of looking at uh, colonial misadventure and colonial atrocity. I think Germany's, Germany's experiences and Germany's actions are distinctive, but I don't think, I also think it's very useful to put the colonial crimes of European nations in some sort of league table. I don't think it's, it achieves anything. And I also think it somehow diminishes the responsibility of those involved because it creates this, this notion that this is what all Europeans did. It was inevitable. It was a terrible, lamentable, but ultimately meaningless phase in European history. And we all come out of it the same. I, I think that's a, that's a dead end historically. We've been talking about the Germans, but tell me something about the uh, indigenous cultures of the region. You've mentioned the Herero uh, mm. already, but tell, mm. me, tell me something about the peoples who, who lived on, on those lands. I think what's most striking about the Herero and Nama peoples of German Southwest Africa is how remote they are from the 19th century cliché of the African, the African that appears in the narratives of the explorers, in the Boys and Adventure books, the, the African who is barely dressed, who is semi-naked, who has never seen a white man, who, is, who runs at the first report of a rifle, and who is utterly unworldly and of his own environment and no knowledge of the world. The people of German Southwest Africa were utterly worldly. They understood the technology. They had had contact with the Boers for, uh, for decades. They had adopted the, uh, the methods of fighting that the Boers um, had brought to the Cape. They were Christian. They'd been in contact with the missionaries for decades. They wore European clothing. Uh, there's even reports that some of the clothing that the uh, German Southwest African Herero Nama people were wearing during the war were um, U.S. Army surplus uniforms from the Spanish-American wars. They read the Cape newspapers. They spoke Dutch. Some of them spoke German. Some of them spoke English. These were worldly people. And what that meant was the elite and leaders, in particular Henry Gritboy, were people who understood the process of colonialism. They understood that a project to strip local leaders of their rights, make them subservient to European leaders was underway. He'd heard of the Conference of Berlin. He had an understanding that a great 
and dangerous force was entering his continent. And he was aware of that. He was aware that he was an African. He was in some ways an early pan-Africanist. He understood that what matters was not the divisions between Africans, but the division between colonizers and the colonial peoples. And yet they again and again underestimate the depths to which the German colonizers would sink. They simply cannot believe the atrocities that they are capable of, and therefore they make themselves vulnerable again and again. I think the Herero and the Nama had a notion of war that was steeped in their traditions, and that's all war ever could be. A different sort of war was, was alien to them completely. They imagined that what happened in the colonial process was the people who stood up to colonialists, who fought a short war, showed that they weren't willing to keel over and hand over their land, that that would be respected, that colonialists wouldn't go to extremes, to next levels, to genocidal solutions and final solutions, because that wasn't in anyone's interest. I think they imagined that the German colonial authorities were more pragmatic than they actually were. And I think what they could never have imagined was the the emergence of a, of a form of racial thinking steeped in a distorted form of social Darwinism that was genocidal, that was an, an impulse that was genocidal, a vision of the world in which certain people simply had no future. I don't think they ever really fully understood that until it was far too late, because it is quite hard to believe. It is, uh, you know, these are men bought, born in the 19th century, and this is, in my view, the first manifestation of a 20th century form of genocidal colonialism in which extinction and extermination and genocide are at its core. And I think they didn't understand it any more than people of Europe in 1940 could understand it. I think the people of the Ukraine who rushed to the German army in 1940 to give bread and salt and, and, and flowers couldn't understand that those invaders had their extermination in mind because it didn't seem feasible, it didn't seem practical. It wasn't practical. It's a very toxic brew, isn't it? This desire for a place in the sun coupled with this belief that nations, peoples struggle in the same way as creatures in, in, in nature struggle. And therefore, might is right. And if you come out on top, that meant that you were supposed to come out on top. It's a, a deeply toxic combination. And it's not unique to, to Germany. I think what's interesting is this event in German history happens almost at a high watermark of the social Darwinian Lebensraum view of colonialism. And it's used to justify an event that's immediate, that's happening. Well, the same ideas, the same theories were then used by European nations and by America to justify events retrospectively, events that had already happened. So when these ideas emerge in Britain, events that had been lamented as tragedies that had happened in the early part of the 19th century were suddenly redrawn and recast as evidence of social Darwinism, evidence that the weak races will inevitably be destroyed. So if you look at the Tasmanian genocide, the extermination of the Tasmanian Aboriginals by the British in the 1820s and 30s, at the time, those involved in it are deeply concerned that what they're doing is abhorrent to God. What they're concerned about fundamentally is their souls. And they do take serious actions to try to prevent the extermination of the Aboriginals, not actions that, <laughs> that, are, that are successful, but they do have an attempt. They do feel that the, the extermination of a people is a, a mark on their soul, an indelible mark on their soul. In the 1870s, that event, with the hindsight of, of social Darwinism, is recast as inevitable proof that the dark races, the weak races, the living fossils, as they were called, had no future. So Germany is using those ideas to justify events it's carrying out, Britain and America who look, looks back at the, at the centuries of wars against the, Amer the Native Americans, they are using the same ideas to justify their history. 
One of the most shocking quotations in the book, I think, comes not from from a German racial scientist or a proto-Nazi, but from Theodore Roosevelt, in essence saying the same thing, that great white civilization will prevail, and it is simply part of the ongoing process that the, he says the, the, the red, the black, the yellow nations will, will, will seed. There's a habit of looking at German history and seeing it as unique and seeing it as standing outside the, 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 the normal progress of European and the, white, and the white races of the world. And I don't think that's true at all. I think that uh, this story shows that Germany was, was part of the modern world in that moment when social Darwinian views became current. Roosevelt, who was a correspondent of Kaiser Wilhelm, had very similar views. And one of the most difficult things about looking at German colonial history and German, German history in the 1940s is that you have people like, like Hermann Goering defending Nuremberg their actions against the Jews and the Slavic peoples, and comparing their attempt to create a racial empire, comparing it to the British Empire and to German and to America's extermination of the indigenous peoples. It's a very uncomfortable thing for us to hear, and it is obviously something which Goering is doing to justify his appalling actions. But there is a grain of truth in it. There is some truth in the idea that the German rush for living space in Africa and then in the East was an attempt to recreate the very worst aspects of colonialism in the Americas and Africa. At what point does it become possible to say that the German policy in Southwest Africa went from one of expropriation and, and, and management of the colony to one where genocide was actually their objective? I think that happened in January 1904. I think that that happened because of the public outcry to the uprising of the Herrera. I think there, was, there were dark murmurings and there were those in the colony who would like liked that to have happened, would like the, the indigenous people just to have disappeared and their land to have been handed over to them. But it was impractical, it was impossible. And so I think it becomes possible when you have the combination of a genocidal mindset and a military outrage. You have a country with a vast standing army suddenly humiliated by people they deem to be racially inferior. And you have a leader who is prepared to invest a hugely disproportionate amount of money and military power on punishing those who have dared to stand up to German military power. And there is an explicit extermination order given. So it's, it's, not, it's not simply a case that some soldiers ran amok and, and went too far, so to speak. It, it's actually a matter of recorded policy, isn't it? I think it's almost unique. I, mean, I don't know. I mean, maybe other historians do. I don't know of another genocide in which there was a clear written order. Scholars of the Second World War talk about the unwritten order, that there is no direct evidence that links the Nazi leadership to the policy to exterminate the Jews other than the, the, um, the Vansay meeting. But obviously, we know from many sources that this was quite clearly uh, their policy. In Namibia, what you have is you have something very different. You have a, a written order explicitly describing the, the, the ethnic cleansing or extermination of the Herrera people from Namibia. And you have a, a less overt but implied threat against the Nama a few months later. But I think there's a, there's a danger in the extermination order of, of 1904 is that it pins what happened to the general who issued that, General Trotter. And that's been an argument that those who've defended German actions have used, that, that this was a, a, a rogue general, this was a, a general who'd lost track of, of the, uh, the traditions of warfare. I think that's a very dangerous argument because the genocide continues after Trot has left the colony, after he's lost his command. I think there is a genocidal mindset within the administration, within the army, and within the colonial administrators who were then sent out to replace him. But you do have this, this, this unique, unique, unique written order that was 
written down on paper, translated, and given out as a, as a document to people who were then forced to go and spread the news amongst their people that they were going to be exterminated or driven off the land. One of the many chilling things in the book for me was the extent to which science or pseudoscience and anthropology and academic disciplines and institutes in general were enthralled by this um, social Darwinism and, and sought all sorts of elaborate, outlandish means some of them very, very, very cruel and barbaric, to, to prove the truth behind what they had asserted. There's a, there's a long process in which Germany plays a belatedly quite a, an important part of attempting to, to categorise and prove the hierarchy of races. It, I think the first country that dominates this is America in the 1850s and 1860s, where a great discourse of, uh, of, of scientific racism and craniology and the study of the, uh, the, the physical attributes of the various races becomes very current. By 1904, Germany, with its new empire in which to carry out these experiments, is taking an increasingly leading role in this, in this, this global endeavour. There's a mawkish element that whenever genocide, whenever extermination, whenever war happens in the German empire, that the scientists, the race scientists, the craniology, the phrenologists are corresponding with soldiers very quickly to try to get the body parts of the victims, that this very disturbing trade in skulls and human remains, and often human severed heads, is always there bubbling under the surface behind the, uh, the, the the military action. And it becomes it becomes a big industry in German Southwest Africa, in the concentration camps, because for once you have a people who are dying in very high numbers, but who are contained. So the, the transportation of their body parts to German scientists, to institutes who are desperate to get hold of these this material, um, becomes very easy and very profitable. You spoke earlier about the, the sort of colonial frenzy that accompanied the, the, the first... German colonies in Southwest Africa. Tell me a little bit about the kind of after image that those colonies left, because that's, that's clearly very important for what happens in the, the 1920s and, and the mm. 1930s. This sense of, of something having been lost or taken away mm. that, that, that was their right. The confiscation of the German colonial empire by the Treaty of Versailles uh, and, the, and the Paris Peace Conference of 1919 was bitterly resented by huge swathes of the German population. Because it was part of the Treaty of Versailles, a hate document that had taken so much else from Germany, every right-wing party, every centrist party, absolutely had to oppose the loss of the empire, absolutely had to have this as at the centre of their programme, that they wanted the, the colonies back. And so it becomes an issue that is swept up in the, the emergence of right-wing political parties in German, the Germany, the interwar Germany, the Germany of the Weimar years. But it also becomes seen as a lost paradise, that what had happened briefly was that Germany had had a place where the German people had been free. They had been freed from the, uh, the urbanization and the industrialism that had blighted modern Germany. They'd been freed from the Jewish industrialists who'd been behind this, this process. And that only in the colonies, now that so many million Germanies, Germans have been driven off their, their farmland, that only in the colonies had the Germans been able to live a truly German life. And German Southwest Africa in particular is seen as this, this, this lost paradise. And books are published describing the lives of, uh, of the settlers who had lived there in paradisal terms, that this was, this was the, greatest, the greatest place ever to live, that Germans had had huge amounts of space, that they had lived this frontier life that had allowed them to discover their inner self, their inner Germanness. And all that had been taken away by the hated British and the hated French, by this awful evil document, the, the, uh, the, the Treaty of Versailles. And so the, the, the desire to, to reclaim that territory becomes a central and absolutely obligatory policy of every party of the right, including the National Socialist Party. 
So on your account, Nazism becomes less of an aberration in history and more of a culmination, which I suppose is the way that Hermann Goering would see it, but with a very different value attached to that, but the culmination of something terrible that had been breeding and festering from the 19th century on. I think aspect of Nazism, I think some aspects of Nazism are inherited from the, the Germany of the Kaisers. Some aspects are arguably original. But I think there's one aspect of colonialism, of Nazism, which is part of a continuum within European history, and that is a, a belief in a racially pure empire based on the idea of living space, that all great people inevitably need to expand the amount of space they have because their populations are on the rise, because they are virile and strong people, and that that can be done ex at the expense of the weak races who are doomed, who are natural slaves or doomed to, to extinction. And that informs much of the thinking behind the German attitude towards the Slavic peoples of the East. And there's a complication here, a, a very, very important complication, is that the German view, the Nazi view of the Jews, I think is distinct and different. The Jews are in the Nazi mindset are a dangerous people, a parasitic people who have undermined Germany, who stabbed Germany in the back in 1919. I think that's less of a colonial a colonial mindset. But the view towards the Slavs, the, the Russians, the people of the, of the East, I think is deeply colonial. And their treatment, the vision that the Nazis have, in particular Hitler has, of the role that the Slavs would play in the German Empire that would subsume Russia and go from Germany's western borders to the Urals, the view of the place that the Slavs would hold in that empire, I think is classically colonial. After Germany had been stripped of its colonies under the Treaty of Versailles after the First World War, what did the future hold for the people of Southwest Africa? At the time of the Paris Peace Conference, the treatment by South Africa of its own black population was becoming apparent to everybody who wanted to look that this was a highly racialized system. This was a very brutal system. So handing over the people of German Southwest Africa who had been the victim of a genocide to South Africa cannot be seen in any way as uh, a beneficial or, or a, a, uh, an act of charity. The British knew and understood the sort of system that the Southwest Africans would be submit would have to submit to under South African rule. What happens to them is that that Southwest Africa becomes a province of South Africa, and that all of the things that we know about in the trajectory of South African history, the rise of apartheid, the past laws. Those same laws are applied to Southwest Africa, and South and Namibia's history is parallel and is part of Southwest Africa. So Southwest African history up until 1991, the German colonists, the German settlers, and the British settlers who have gone there in their thousands are complicit in this and take part in this, and the, the division between black and white becomes the only one that really matters. And so the history of the Harara and the Nama, which have been characterised by exploitation and genocide up to 1919, becomes one of um, of them being put onto reservations, of them being put into townships. And all these were the, the words, townships, and all, the, all the, the infrastructure, the complicated infrastructure of apartheid, you can see still in Namibia, the deep insistence on dividing people into ethnic groups to prevent any sense of black loyalty, black unity, uh, you can see in Namibia. And you can see the rise of, um, of SWAPA, which is the, the Namibian equivalent of the ANC. And in some ways, um, the struggle in Namibia was one of the, 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 the great military struggles that brought down apartheid. And uh, many Namibians, when they look at their history, they see their struggle against the South Africans as just as central to their history as their oppression by the Germans. That really leads me on to my last question, because I wanted to ask you finally, what mental and physical traces you think have been left on Namibia today? 
Well, Namibia is one of the world's newest countries. So independence, it's only been independent for 20 years. And it's just emerging from a century of colonialism, German and then South, Af- South African colonialism. So you're just getting the first generation of black Namibians who were educated in a new system away from what the South Africans call the Bantu Education Act, of people who are just beginning to be determined to remember their history, to question and reject the colonial fantasy version of history that was begun by the Germans and expanded by the South Africans. So you have a country emerging from the shadow of colonialism 20, 30, 40 years later than the rest of Africa. So it's just beginning... It's a fascinating time in Namibia. The past is emerging, often of its own volition, from the deserts. Human remains have been found in the deserts. People are becoming opposed to the statues, commemorating the war that the Germans, the Germans built um, just before the First World War. And so you're having a, a rejection of a state history, a, a, a seemingly impervious and, and solid history, um, manifested in statues and in street names. That's being challenged and rejected. So this year, the um, the, the Ryder statue, which was the statue to the uh, the fallen German soldiers who took part in the genocide, that's been removed from the centre of Windhoek, from outside the old German fort. And that, that's really exciting, that uh, this seemingly permanent history is beginning to crumble. David Oloshoga. The book which he co-wrote with Kasper Eriksson is called The Kaiser's Holocaust and is out now in hardback. My second guest today is a Guardian's Asia environment correspondent. As such, Jonathan Watts has had the chance to travel all over China in the past seven years, seeing for himself the country's growing industrial might and the price that's being paid for it in terms of human health and environmental damage. So his new book, On a Billion Chinese Jump, is a report from the front line of climate change, informed by unrivaled knowledge of the situation on the ground. And that situation is, if not hopeless, then certainly critical. The best place to begin, I thought, was with the book's title. How did he come up with it? Uh, it comes from my first childhood encounter with the idea of apocalypse. Perhaps strangely, uh, I, I've, I've asked this to other people and they've said my first idea of you know the world annihilation uh, came when I heard about nuclear war or disease. But for me, uh, at least as, as best as I can remember it, it was the idea of a billion Chinese jumping because as a small child growing up in a North London suburb, I struggled to grasp how big China was. And an adult explained it to me in in roughly the following terms. He said, there's so many people in China that if all of them jumped at the same time, it would knock the world off its axis and we would go spinning into space and everyone would die. Uh, But don't worry, that will never happen. Now, that's something you can't say to a, a, a small child, especially someone like me who was a born warrior. So for quite some time after that, every night before I went to bed, I would pray and I would pray as normal. I would say, dear God, please look after my mummy and my daddy and my sister and my dog Toby. And then I would list all my friends. And then at the end, every night I would tag on and please don't let everyone in China jump at the same time. You know, it's a foolish fears of a very young child. And of course, you grow out of something like that. But when I came to write this book, I remembered this childhood experience. And it seemed like an appropriate title because on one side, it shows how fears of China and its size can be very irrational. And and that we, we, we kind of group everyone in China together and assume they might be doing everything at once uh, when 
after coming to China, um, I realized just how diverse the country is and that there's an enormous amount of different things going on at different speeds. So that's part of the reason for choosing that. But the other side of it is that uh, in an environmental perspective, what is happening in China today really will uh, shape the world for better or for worse. So the, the economic jump is taking China towards the same unsustainable lifestyle that already exists in the West. And when it is multiplied by a billion or however many people get close to this lifestyle, it will have huge or it's, it is having huge implications for all of us. And so I've tried to capture that in the book while also making it very clear you can't really blame China for what's happening that actually a billion people in the richer countries of the world in Europe in the US in Japan they've already made this jump uh, that China's now following it pushes us further further towards a sort of tipping point but also behind China there are several billion more people in countries like India and Brazil that are about to make the same jump too. So it really is a way of trying to describe how humanity has been living, a big chunk of humanity has been living beyond its means for a long time already. And now when the majority of us start to do that, we're all going to have to make some huge adjustments or face big trouble. So for the last several years, you've been traveling around China, really looking at the <coughs> consequences of China making that jump. And for someone who's a self-confessed born worrier, you must have you must have been given plenty of fuel for your worries as you travelled around. Yes, um, that's right. I, I mean, I'm I'm an accidental environment correspondent uh, in that when I started out as a journalist in 1996 in Japan, I was covering a full gamut of stories from the economy to new technology, and in those days, I would probably write about the environment only. Uh, once every two or three months. Um, more recently, and particularly after moving to China in 2003, I found at first just not on purpose, uh, but I was just writing more and more environmental stories because it was such a big part of what was happening in China and shaping the economy, shaping social policy because there was protests, um, of course, affecting climate change because China had become the biggest emitter of greenhouse gases. And there was a, a chance a, a couple of years ago to take a post as an environment specialist, and I took it. And at the same time, took some time off, six months off, to write this book. And it, it was a shock. I, th I think everybody has a, a general sense of unease about what's happening to the environment. We read about the polar ice caps melting, etc. And we, we hear about species going into decline. But to actually concentrate on it for such an intense period of time and really just first of all to see it I mean uh, I've been very fortunate partly to self-funded for the book but also because the Guardian has sent me all over the place I'm a, I am able to go and see melting glaciers and I, I am able to go to forests and talk to conservation workers in national parks and things like that so it's very much upfront uh, experience of what's going on and then to look at the reading and there's some it, there's some pretty grim reading out there you know like one book's called notes from a dying planet and there are some very gloomy experts say hey, there's one chinese professor has a theory that the world is going to be engulfed in a a storm of salt and dust and we're all going to die from this so you are 
looking into the abyss, as it were, all the things that could possibly go wrong, and there are a lot of them. So yes, for a born warrior and now a professional warrior, if you like, it was an emotional roller coaster. Really, a lot of ups and downs.、Um, you know, there, there were definitely times when I sort of despaired for the future of humanity, but it wasn't all down. You know, there are people doing amazing things.、Um, scientists who are. Pushing back the boundaries of renewable energy technology, environmental activists who are very bravely confronting、uh, factory owners and local officials, and very benevolent, decent people at a government level too in China and outside of China, and and you can see that more and more people are, are becoming concerned and getting involved. So the picture is not entirely bleak. In, in in fairness, you did see some pretty apocalyptic sites, didn't you? Not not just little harbingers, but but signs of real real collapse and environmental stress at its most acute. Yeah,、um, the the book is written as a as a travelogue, and interestingly, in,、um, perhaps as a result, on, on in Amazon, it's classified in the holidays and travel section. Which is quite funny because, if anything, it's a guide to all the places you don't want to go. There, there are waste dumps, there are coal mines, there are cancer villages, there are areas where people have been forced to leave because the grasslands have deteriorated, or because the deserts are creeping in and sand dunes are swallowing up their homes. So, some of the sites have been absolutely appalling. Absolutely,、uh, no doubt about it. I mean, I've seen. Rivers that are, have have turned red with pollution, rivers that have turned yellow with pollution, rivers that have turned black with pollution,、uh, and gone to city after city after city where there is a horrible grey haze that envelops everything, and you can almost taste the pollution in the air. And it's not always like that, fortunately. Otherwise, you really would despair. But when you have when you have too many of those experiences in a row, it does make you think. What are we doing? I wanted to ask you about Chinese attitudes to the environment. One of the things which really sticks in my mind from the book is a folk tale that you tell early on about an, a foolish old man who wants to move a mountain, and this is a, a story which is told to to school children. What's what's what, tell us a little bit about the tale and what its what its sort of moral is for the Chinese. Oh, it, it's called Yugong Yishan. It's it's the the story of the foolish old man who moved the mountains, and it's I think it dates back close to two thousand years.、Uh, and this story is about a an old man who who lives in a remote area, and he's infuriated that there's a big mountain outside his home that's blocking his view and also making it difficult to travel. So. He decides to move the mountain, and he's, he's just stone by stone moving the mountain. And somebody sees him and says, "Yeah, what are you doing?" He says, "I'm going to move the mountain.、Uh, I'm not going to give up." And then, eventually, God is so impressed at his diligence because not only does he do it, but he gets his sons and his grandsons. To keep moving stone by stone, the mountain away, that God sends down depends on the version, but you know, the equivalent of two angels or two sons from from the heavens, who give him a big helping hand, and they shift the mountain away. So he actually succeeds in moving the mountain. This story has resonated over time, 
as a, a symbol that mankind can do anything with enough determination and enough male offspring, effectively, to keep going after generation after generation. Mao Zedong loved this story and told this story. And for him, the mountain was, or mountains, I think it depends, sometimes there's two mountains that he moved, was imperialism and capitalism. And if you move those, we are liberated. It's sort of very much a case of liberation and, and, and the, the potential of mankind. And in a sense, it's what is happening in parts of China, that engineers are moving into the most remote places on Earth, particularly Tibet and Xinjiang, and starting to take more and more minerals out of the mountain and send them off to the coast. So it's kind of come true in a way that this sense from time immemorial that you can engineer solutions to problems, you can reshape nature, mankind has that potential. And it's still very strong, and you see it in all sorts of mega projects. China has most of the world's great mega projects, from Three Gorges Dam, South North Water Diversion Program, the biggest bridges, etc., etc. You can go on for some time. But what I tried to show in the book as well is that this isn't the only way China looks at nature, and that there are there are different threats, and that sort of man-centered ordering of the world there's one view and it ties in in some regards with confucianism and certainly with sort of maoist re-engineering yeah. but there's another view which has been very strong and, and depending on the time in history which is a bit more taoist which is mankind living in balance with nature and there's a there's a great old story about that as well which is i think it was told by Zhuangzi, which is a story of the useless tree and in this story this is almost like a the other side uh, of, of Chinese belief. But in this story, uh, Zhuangzi is dozing under a gnarled, ugly-looking tree. And a, a scholar, a, a supposed wide man, or someone who thinks he's very wise, comes up and says, oh, what are you doing, wasting your time under this ugly old tree? This, this tree is useless. Uh, and Zhuangzi counters and says, well... Perhaps this is a useless tree, but then it's a very lucky useless tree because if its branches were straight, someone would want to cut it down and make it into something useful. But because it's this twisted shape, it's managed to survive and it's surviving and you may call it useless, but I'm getting shade here and I'm resting here and it does something for me. So you keep your useful trees and I'll keep my useless trees. And I think that in a sense, shows this sort of deeper understanding of what nature can give you. It's not that immediate short-term utility, but something deeper and more longer-lasting and less stressed and letting nature do its own thing. So both of these views have coexisted in Chinese thought for thousands of years. Uh, and and I, I speculate in the book that this may be one of the reasons why Chinese civilization has lasted so long is that it's never been one or the other. Because in one sense, this, it, this is the binary opposition between order and chaos. But you've been able to combine the two. There are stories, for example, of the you know, old mandarins. And during the day, when they had to be officials, they would be very Confucian and order everything and make sure the hierarchies were working. And then when they went home, in their homes, they would, they would relax with 
a much more Taoist view. They would probably do Tai Chi or tend their gardens according to Taoist principles. So you had both of these things together. And one of the important things in the book is that values are the core. If, if, if we have problems, we need to change values. Uh, and maybe one of the things that we could learn, not just China, but the world could learn, is, is a bit more of the Taoist view. I mean, not the only, we, we think we have to explore all, all sorts of different uh, ways of looking at nature. Uh, but certainly if in, in China, if there was a bit more emphasis on Taoism and natural wisdom, rather than man's often short-term utilitarianism, uh, then we might be better off in the long run. Values, as you say, are important. The, the other thing which it struck me as being important are political structures. And you say at one point in the book, China is neither a dictatorship nor a democracy. In fact, it's got the worst of both worlds because it doesn't have the strength of, of dictatorship to actually impose compliance. And at the same time, it doesn't have the strength of democracy in order to allow grassroots, move, grassroots movements to really have a, an influence on, on what's happening. And so it's the middle which becomes the real sort of power brokers. And that's where you get corruption and self-serving and, and, and short-termism. And that sounds like quite a, quite a recipe for disaster. Uh, absolutely. Um, the political structure and, and, and the governance problems are very tied to what happens uh, in the environment. And I, I, I wrestled with this. I mean, my, when I set out to write the book, uh, obviously this was one of the thoughts very strongly in my mind that the lack of transparency, uh, a lack of accountability would be making the whole situation so much worse because clearly uh, that has been one of the reasons why you get pollution incidents so often is that factory owners are able to ignore the rules because they're paying off local officials. And you hear that again and again and again. And this made me think that Although China is described as this authoritarian state, often when it comes to the environment, it seems to completely lack authority. I mean, the government has a lot of very good policies on paper. The legislature has passed some very enlightened environmental laws on paper. But when it comes to practice, the drive for economic growth trumps everything. And so, absolutely right, at the top, of society at the top of the power structure, you have a president, Hu Jintao, who is trained as a hydro engineer. You have a prime minister, Wen Jiabao, who's trained as a geologist. And I refer to them in the book as, as, as President Water and Premier Earth, because they, they, if anyone should know about environmental problems, it should be these two. And so I think you, you have seen an effort to try to clean up the environment, on paper at least. And this is the basis of what they call the scientific outlook on development, which is an attempt to be more sustainable. So at the top, there's an effort. At the bottom, there's certainly an understanding of the problems, because the poorest people are the ones who are always the worst affected. They're the ones who live by the, the, the waterways that flood all the time. They're the ones who live on the edge of the deserts that are creeping closer. They're the ones who live uh, and depend on, on, on glaciers that are, that are melting and shrinking. They know the problems. Uh, they're the ones who've been affected by pollution from the factories. But it really is that band in the middle, the local party chiefs, the factory owners. They're the well-known villains, and for sure, uh, that's a problem. But the middle band includes consumers in big cities. It includes foreign investors. All of these people 
want more economic growth. They want to be able to have more for themselves. And they either ignore or willfully neglect the consequences, which are felt often outside of where they are, especially because many of them live in cities or nice homes or they live in air-conditioned environments. So if the climate changes, they don't feel it so much uh, as the people at the bottom or, or know about it as much as the people at the top. So this whole issue of governance is hugely, hugely important. But I did also consider uh, that given the really appalling situation we're in as far as the environment's concerned, that perhaps we need a di real dictatorship. I mean, I considered it as a theoretical question that democracies have lots of strengths, but one of the clear weaknesses when it comes to the environment of a democracy is that every four or five years, politicians must stand for re-election by promising more. And they cannot go to voters and say, vote for me, I will give you less tomorrow than you have today. That, that's just not going to happen. So they, none of the politicians you see now, even in the West, really talks about sacrifice or cost cutting. Whenever that comes up, they say, oh, that's just the you know, hair shirt approach. You don't want to go there. Um, and it's it's considered politically unrealistic, and, and at the moment it is. So I thought, well, you know, if that if that won't work in the West, maybe China's the place where it could work, because they don't have to stand for re-election, and maybe they can Im impose their will. But what I found was that, in some respects, having a one-party system is helpful to promote certain industries. So. For investing in renewable energy, for example, this is the great success story of modern China so far, is that the government at the top level has made a decision. We will look for growth through a low carbon economy. So China has just gone, I mean, made progress in leaps and bounds towards manufacturing solar panels, erecting wind turbines, trying to nurture an industry of clean, so-called clean cars that run on electricity. There's there's numerous projects to start eco-cities and eco-villages. It's coal efficiency technology is probably the best in the world, or it might well have passed the US as the best in the world. So in this area, I think it works because they can channel large uh, sums and, and resources uh, with policy incentives to expand. But if it comes to constraints or certain things that should be controlled, then I think there are huge weaknesses and worse than a democracy because people don't buy into it. They don't feel part of it. They just feel they have to take what they can out of it. And that's where you have pollution problems. That's where you have nature reserves that just often don't work properly. They're ineffective. Um, the whole situation was best summed up by a, a wetland uh, conservation activist in in, in the south of China, in, in Shangri-La. And uh, he'd been struggling for years and years to save the wetlands near his home. Um, it was a losing battle. And I was saying, you know, what, why? You know, what, what's wrong? This is, this is a beautiful thing. Why isn't it being protected? And he just had one, you know, one short phrase that seemed to sum up everything. He said, the, the Chinese government, it has the power to expand. The Chinese government does not have the power to constrain. And I think that, that it's not a bad way of sort of summing up 
the governance situation now in China. Yeah, when you visit Shanghai, there's a very <coughs> strong sense that the consumerist genie is out of the bottle, and it would be a it would be a a brave government which attempted to to try to put that back in. Also, you know, as you already suggested, we in we in the West can't be very self righteous in our hand wringing because. I was I was struck by the fact that there are two hundred thousand Kentucky Fried Chicken employees in China. So there's clearly a very big drive to to make China replicate our our lifestyle. So so that the engines of consumerism seem to me to be turning very very rapidly. Yes,、uh, this is something that I wasn't really expecting when I set out to write the book. I didn't expect to be writing a book so much about consumption, but al- that's almost my conclusion is that. Well, one of the conclusions is that this is a huge problem. We, as a species, certainly not just China, but we as a species are consuming way beyond our, our planet's means, and so we have to start thinking: how do we use what's left in a way that allows future generations something to live on? But the global economy is totally driven by consumption, and particularly now we've had an economic. Crash, and so the West is not consuming as it used to consume. Big companies, more than ever before, international companies, more than ever before, are looking to China to consume ever more and fill the gap, as they call it. And and so, in a sense, consu- consumption is more of a problem than pollution because pollution is recognised as a terrible thing, and we know how to fix it. With money and 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 enough political will, you can you can deal with it. It's been done in country after country, but consumption is not considered a problem at all. If you look at it through an environmental lens, of course, yes, terrible. If you look at it through an, an economic lens, fantastic. This is exactly what we need. Every Major economist in the world wants more Chinese consumption. The Chinese government wants more Chinese consumption. International businesses want more Chinese consumption, and foreign governments want more Chinese consumption because it will help address trade imbalances. So, you get a situation where yes, places like Shanghai are being. You know, Shanghai is the bridgehead for this sort of retail invasion, and all of the big brands now, you know, from. From from Kentucky Fried Chicken and McDonald's to Barbie and Armani are all moving into Shanghai, using it as their bridgehead and hoping to sort of conquer China and have the, the you know the, the the famous billion customer market. And so you have this huge drive to encourage Chinese people to consume more, and it's a real problem addressing this subject. From Britain, as a British journalist, because there is without doubt an equity problem here—a big, bad equity problem—in that Britain, in in many ways, two hundred odd years ago, found this industrial model that used resources unsustainably and allowed the people who applied this model to live fantastic lives, and that. Has been replicated in country after country. This is the process of development,、uh, and now, pretty much everyone agrees we are li- using the world's resources unsustainably beyond beyond the planet's means. But how can the wealthier countries now now say to 
the up and coming developing nations. Sorry, we've we've sort of we've had this feast for two hundred years. There's few scraps left, uh, and we're just going to share those out amongst us. Uh, so you have you have this this terrible ethical dilemma. Ultimately, it's a question of well, if China is allowed to burn the same amount of coal to emit as much as many emissions into the air uh, as as Britain and other countries have done for hundreds of years. Uh, and and if it can you know eats at the same level drives cars at the same level etc etc that would be perfectly fair it would probably also be utterly calamitous so clearly there needs to be some compensation some recompense and some persuasion and i think that the only possible way to do it is by just proving the current model is utterly bankrupt and useless uh, and that it isn't something to aspire to. It is ultimately going to be a road to ruin. And that there, 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 there are better values out there. And maybe countries like China or India or Brazil can be the places that do not rely on people having two cars and do not rely on people having ever bigger homes, uh, but find something that has a longer lifespan that's better for future generations. So that that would be the sort of the hope of where Chinese consumption is might go. But frankly, at the moment, it's completely going in the consumerist direction. Not yet at an American or even a European level. But there's a couple of turning points in recent years. In 2000, roughly in 2008, it's estimated that that's the point where the average person in China, for the first time, started living lives beyond the planet's means. So in other words, in 2007, if everybody on Earth had lived like the average Mr. and Mrs. Wang, we would live within the planet's means. Whereas at that point, if we'd all lived like Mr. and Mrs. Smith in America, we would need four planets to, to give us all the things we need. But China is moving up towards the US. It's still a way to go. But in some places, it's it it's called up very quickly. Shanghai has, in terms of per capita carbon emissions, Shanghai has overtaken New York, and Paris, and London. Now, you know, there there are problems with comparisons like this. In that, that's partly because Shanghai has a huge steelworks and a big car company, and it's you know, It's not that simple. But cl- the trend is clearly in that direction, and it, it it's estimated that even in per capita terms, China's emissions will be higher than the than Britain's within the next 10 years or so. And just very recently, you had a report by the International Energy Agency that said, for the first time ever, the United States is no longer the world's biggest user of energy. China has overtaken it as you know, the country that has the most power, uses the most power. And this, this is consumer power. It will also be geostrategic power. Um, and the trajectory is very clear that this is the way things are going to go. Jonathan Watts. When a Billion Chinese Jump is out now in paperback. You can find out more about both books by visiting the Faber website at faber.co.uk. You'll also find a full podcast archive there featuring almost 50 author interviews. I hope you'll join me again soon for another Faber podcast. And until then, thank you very much for listening and goodbye.